ask you um, please to bow with me now as we come to the scripture. Father in heaven, I ask for your help to us uh, as we uh, take up now the word of God to read, to listen. I, I pray that you would work it deep within us, that we would know it, believe it, live from it, may it feed our souls. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Colossians and chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, please. I want to read verses 24 uh, through 29. Colossians and chapter 1. Hear the word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints, to them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches, the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I want to take up, if God will help me, just this verse 27, just this expression of it, which is this mystery revealed, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It seems to me to be at the very heart of our understanding of our relationship with God, who we are, who he is, our understanding of this life really and the life to come. Christ in you, Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of of glory. This little expression comes in a context. It doesn't come in a fortune cookie. It doesn't come in a billboard. It doesn't come in a t-shirt. It doesn't come in a book of sayings. It comes in a context. There was something that Paul had on his mind that brought that expression out. You remember that Paul is writing to a particular group of people, a group of people in Colossae. It's a church that was founded by a fellow minister of Paul's, not Paul himself, uh, this man Epaphras. Paul had heard about them. He had heard about their faith. He had heard about their love. He had heard heard about the hope that they had gotten from the truth of the gospel. And, And so Paul is writing to them because he's also heard that there are those in their community which are teaching that Christ isn't all sufficient. That is, that there's something that needs to be added to this gospel of Christ. Christ that they received from Epaphras. And Paul is writing to them to speak to them of Christ, who he is and what he's done, so that they will know that he, Christ, is sufficient for all that they need. So he writes to them. He writes to them ultimately that Christ is preeminent, meaning that Christ is first in all things. He's preeminent in such a way that knowing the will of God has its one purpose that we may live worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. The, the, the need to know the will of God is so that we can live in such a way that is worthy of Christ, who he is, that's fully pleasing to Christ. That's why we need to know the will of God. 
Christ is preeminent. Our whole lives are to be defined by him, to revolve around him, to be known only through and by our relationship really with him. Christ is preeminent because he's the creator of all things. Everything depends upon Jesus in the creation. He sustains everything. Everything is known by how it's related to him because everything is through him and ultimately for him. Everything in creation serves Christ. He is preeminent. Not only that, but he's preeminent, obviously, in the church. He created the church, Jesus did, by way of his resurrection. When he was resurrected from the dead, resurrected from the dead, that, that, that means that he was the firstborn among many who would come after him. They too, like him, because of him, resurrected unto life that we may live now and even after we die for all eternity. So he is preeminent over all creation, over the church. He is the one who reconciles all things, makes all things right in creation. He reconciles enemies, people like you and me, who formerly enemies of God. He reconciles us to God by way of his cross because we know that we were alienated from God because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him. And and thus this penalty that was to be ours, Christ took upon himself that we might be forgiven, that we might be freed of it, redeemed really. He paid that ransom price to set us free from the penalty of sin. And not only its penalty, but even its power, its dominion in our lives, that we may walk with Christ in a day to come when we will be free from the presence of sin and all we will know is that which is perfect, that which reflects Christ himself. Glory. Paul writes to them that so important is this gospel, is this truth. Uh, that he spends his life, it's his calling, he's willing even to suffer so that others may know this truth of the gospel. And he comes now to lay it out for them so that they may grow in their maturity in Christ because he says his purpose is that every person would become mature in Christ so that the word of God would be fully known. It's interesting that Paul refers to this as a mystery. Notice how he puts it. In verse 23, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. He says there's this mystery that that he's now revealing. Now in what sense was this gospel that Paul is preaching previously mystery that is unknown? It wasn't mystery in the sense that Paul had to solve it like some kind of a riddle. It wasn't mystery in the sense that it could only be known to a a certain few or a certain elite. It was mystery in the sense that it hadn't been up until this point fully revealed. And, And that because it probably couldn't have been understood really until the present time. That is until the time that Paul was writing, until the time that Jesus had come. Because it was wrapped up so much in the coming of Jesus. And what is that mystery? That mystery is, is, he puts it like this, to them God made, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. And so this mystery has something to do with Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, people who aren't descendants of Abraham. Now, now why would that be necessary to talk about? Well, we're reading through the Bible. If we begin with Genesis, you might get the impression that being related to God is a Jewish thing. Because it seems to be very much about ancient Israel. It seems to be very much about descendants of Abraham. In fact, by Genesis chapter 12, God calls this man Abram, who becomes Abraham, and makes promises to him. And we see that his people become a nation, ultimately. They were enslaved in Egypt for a while, you remember, for 400 years. And then they come out of that enslavement. They're redeemed, really, um, brought out, delivered from that slavery and become a nation. And when they become a nation, God gives to them his law. And not only that, he sets up a community which shows how it is that people are to be related to him. There are kings in this community who rule over the people righteously, that is, on behalf of God, and they're to lead the people into paths of righteousness. These kings are to lead them into righteousness because that's their calling. So they're to rule righteously so that the people live rightly related to God and rightly related to each other. They're given priests who represent the people before God directly. Uh, These priests offer sacrifices to God. So God is saying you need someone to represent you who I view as pure and holy. And sacrifices need to be made because you are not pure and holy. And so if you're going to live in my presence as sinners, I'm going to have to take your life. But I won't take yours. I'll take the life of another, the life of a substitute. And so we see in this community this illustration of how we're to live in the very presence of God. Kings to rule, to lead us in righteousness. Priests to represent, sacrifices to be made so we can live in his presence. Prophets who are to come, who are to speak to us of our sin and convict us of our sin so we'll come to repentance and we'll know the very promises of God for his mercy and grace to us. That's this whole community. And it all revolves, it seems, around this nation of Israel. And so now Paul is coming to say that, that, that this mystery uh, of the question, what about everybody else? What about all the other nations? Now, it was seen in this old covenant. It was seen in the Old Testament, uh, even in the context of the life of ancient Israel, that it wasn't just the salvation, wasn't just for descendants of Abraham. It was for any who would come and believe, even though it was so focused around this nation of Israel. We, we see hints of that, even as God makes promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says that through you, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so even from the get-go, we realize, okay, it's going to center in some sense in that time period around ancient Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But, but, but the promise is that through them, through Abraham and his descendants, all the nations of the world, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We see hints of it as Rahab is saved. We see it as Ruth enters in. We see it as sojourners pass through, through the lands of ancient Israel and, and stay and are brought into the faith of the Israelites. We see it in some nations who are saved, like Nineveh, and others like that. 
We see it in the, in, the, in, the, in the proclamations of the prophets. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this one who is to come and he is to be in Isaiah chapter 9, a light unto the Gentiles. And, and Isaiah reiterates that time after time. This, this one who is to come, the suffering servant of God, is to be a light not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles as well. And when Jesus comes on the scene, we see this even more uh, completely. There is this man, Simeon, who is staying around the temple all the time. And when he sees Mary and Joseph bring the baby Jesus uh, into the temple, he says, I've seen it. The consolation of Israel, the light, the salvation of the Gentiles. So it isn't just for this one people, but it's for all the families of the earth. Uh, We see it as Jesus begins to walk and he goes to this woman in Samaria, of all places. An enemy, really, of the Israelites. And he speaks to her of living water and she seems, she comes to faith in Jesus. We see it as this woman who is a Canaanite. Uh, The older translations refer to her as one who's a Syrian Phoenician, a Syro-Phoenician. And she comes and her, her daughter is, is demon-possessed. And she comes to Jesus and she said, will you help me? And he said, I've come for the household of Israel. But she continues on and continues on and continues on. And Jesus frees her daughter from this possession of this evil spirit, even though she's not one of the household of Israel. We see that. We get the impression from the Gospels, as the Gospel writers write, that when Christ is lifted up, all people who look upon him will be saved. Jesus looked at a crowd of people one day and said, who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? It's anyone who does the will of my father. We hear that expression that whosoever will believe will be saved. It's made explicit, of course, uh, in this great commission where we're to make disciples of all nations. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, it's bigger. That, 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 that God kept these, this, these ancient Israel together, made promises to them so that out of them would be birthed the Messiah. And when he would come, he would be the savior of the world, the savior that all of all who would believe in him. It wouldn't depend upon ethnicity at all. It wouldn't be confined to one particular nationalistic group of people, but it would be for the whole world. We see this as the church begins in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus meets with his disciples and he tells them to wait in Jerusalem until all power comes upon them by the Holy Spirit so that they can be his witnesses in Jerusalem for sure. In Judea, yes but also in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. As we read through the book of Acts and the life of the early church, we see this gospel going out. By Acts chapter 8, there's a great scattering of everybody but the apostles, of of these believers scattering from Jerusalem for their lives, if you will, as persecution comes. We see Philip going to Samaria. We see this Ethiopian man coming to faith. We see by Acts chapter 9 that God calls this man Saul of Tarsus, who's a terrorist against the church, and he calls this Saul of Tarsus to be the apostle to the Gentiles, this very one we now know as Paul the Apostle. And he goes to these uh, Gentile nations to speak of Christ. And not only that, in Acts in chapter 10, we find this vision that Peter has 
And it's an odd one. It's this vision of, of food on a, on, a, on, a, on a tablecloth, on a blanket. And it's all kinds of food, but it's the kind of food that Jewish people weren't allowed to eat. And the word from God to Peter was, eat it. And Peter said, I can't. And he said, oh, Peter, you don't get it. That was just to illustrate in the old covenant, those food laws were just to illustrate that you were to be separate. That is no longer true. Go. Take this gospel to all the nations. At the same time, people were coming from the household of Cornelius, this God-fearing Gentile, from the household of Cornelius to Peter to say, come and come to this household of Cornelius and tell us of the gospel. And as Peter does, the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they're converted and we see it. This gospel is bigger than just for um, descendants of Abraham. It's for all the earth. In fact, as we read through the, the epistles, we find in Romans chapter 4 where Paul speaks of this gospel and he speaks of Abraham as being the father of us all. The father of all who come to God through faith. In Galatians, we read that the gospel was actually pronounced to Abraham in this sense that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed And so Paul was able to say, now in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no rich or poor. There is no educated, uneducated. There is no barbarian. There is no slave. There is no free. We're all one in him. In fact, that's the amazing part of this mystery. Who would have ever thought that these ancient enemies, Jews and everybody else, Jews and Gentiles, would become one together no one would have thought that that's the great mystery in fact in Ephesians in chapter 2 Paul speaks of this mystery and he says that God is making one new man out of two by way of the cross because we all come to God through Jesus it was true in the old covenant they hadn't seen Jesus yet he hadn't come yet but everything pointed to him the the way of the old covenant was the same as the way of the new covenant the only difference was in the old covenant they were anticipating Jesus who was to come and everything in their lives illustrated him from the kings to the priests and the sacrifices and the prophets it was all trusting in the very word of God that these things would suffice that they'd be ruled by a good king, that they would have priests who would rightly represent them in holy ways before God, sacrifices that would suffice and be sufficient, prophets who would speak to them the truth. And all of that pointed to Jesus, who is the king who does lead us righteously into righteousness, who is our high priest, who represents us perfectly before God, who is our sacrifice that is accepted, who is our prophet, who speaks to us that which is truth. And now we look and we realize this gospel goes to all. And what is it? It's this expression, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whatever does that mean? When we talk about hope, we talk about that which is future. We're talking about that which we do not presently have. Because if you have it, you needn't hope for it. If it's there with you, you needn't hope for it. But if it's a hope, it means it's something that is to come at least in its fullness. And and we hope only for good things. Now, we can anticipate bad things. But when we anticipate bad things, we don't call that hope. You don't say, I hope I get the flu. Right? 
You don't say, I hope I lose my job. Now, you may anticipate getting the flu. You may anticipate losing your job. But that isn't what you're hoping for. You're hoping for health and you're hoping to keep your job and all of that. We hope for that which is good. When we anticipate that which is bad, we call that despair. So we're talking about hope. The Christ in us is the hope of glory. We're saying that glory is something good. Glory is something that we look forward to. Glory is something that we desire. Now when we speak of this glory, when the Bible speaks of this glory, it speaks of it like this. For instance, in Romans in chapter 8, verse 18, the apostle writes this. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so he's talking here in Romans chapter 8 about a glory that is to be revealed to us. And in it, what he's saying is this glory is so good, this glory is so great that it makes whatever we may be experiencing at the moment which we would call suffering, that it makes what we're experiencing at the moment that we would call suffering to be minuscule, microscopic, very small. No matter how significant, how painful that suffering would be. It says take the most painful moments of your life And if you compare it with the glory that is to come, that painful moment is as if it is nothing. That's the good. That's the glory that is to be revealed. Now you see why he would call it hope. There's an anticipation that all of this suffering would be gone. And all of this suffering would be replaced with that which is so good that we would forget, if you will, all this suffering. At the moment, I suspect, that's unimaginable. That's why it's hope. That's why this hope fuels, if you will, faith. And faith fuels hope, together related. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We look into the future. We say, this is to come. This is our hope. We hope for that which is good. And that which is good is glory. And Paul speaks to it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Then note this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What's our hope? Well, Paul puts it as the redemption of our bodies. Now, what does that mean? Well, that points to the very last thing that is to be done before we get to live on the new heaven, in the, under the new heavens on the new earth. That redemption of our bodies, getting our new bodies. 
And so he's saying at that point in time, everything will be right. Everything will be perfect. That will be glory. This glory some have referred to as the beatific vision. I bet you haven't used the word beatific lately. It simply means that which brings bliss. That which brings blessing. That which brings happiness and delight. That which fills our souls with all that is good. This glory, when we see it, that's what takes place. When we see this glory, that's this sense of everything's right, everything's perfect, everything is as it should be. Everything that I see, everything that I am. And that the redemption of our bodies, you see, signifies that now we have an incorruptible body, imperishable body. And all that is seen, all that's experienced is right and good. Second uh, Corinthians, in chapter 4, Paul puts it like this, verse 17, verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Again, future, we don't see them. It's really good. In fact, he refers to it as an eternal, that is something that can never go away, weight, that is something that is great, of glory. That is what is to come. This beatific eternity that brings bliss and delight and happiness when all is right. He said that's really the hope. And that really, frankly, is the hope of human beings. It's in us. It's, it's broken and shattered, but it's in us as the image of God. That we desire to see him. We desire to see all that is right and true in him. I was watching the Kentucky Derby and realizing that the glory of every trainer and every jockey is the perfect race. That's glorious to such. The glory of every coach is the championship. The glory of every businessman is the prophet. The glory of every teacher is that his students learn. The glory of every cook is, is the raves of those who eat his or her food, which they make. The glory of every doctor is the patient who is cured. The glory of every mathematician is pre-equations. The glory of, of every artist is that perfect work of art. The glory of every statesman is peace. The glory of every politician is that bill that gets passed. The glory of every pitcher is a perfect game. The glory of every parent is to see their children grow and mature in righteousness and holiness. That's their glory, you see. We desire to see that which is right and good. Now, the problem with sin is it perverts all of that. Notice Romans in chapter 1. We read this, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You see, here it is. We, we see it at least in part. And we know it. Then he writes this, Paul does. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, you became satisfied, at least we thought, with that which we could define as God, that which we could make, that which we could control, and we missed out on the blessing of the glory of God. And you see, if the statement were, all that is right and good in you is your hope of glory, we would be people to be pitied. Because history has shown us, history has shown that our glory fades. It doesn't long satisfy Ecclesiastes the preacher of the Old Testament uh, does an experiment and in his experiment he, he tries the best of everything and he could because he had wealth and power and great intellect and so he pursued wealth and found that the glory of our wealth fades because the truth of the matter is that poor people and rich people both die And at the end of the day, the rich leave everything behind. And as he puts, parenthetically, most likely to someone who will spend it unwisely. So he pursued the the life of the mind, the intellect, to know all that could possibly be known. And his realization was, the glory of that pursuit was, that the more he knew, the more he realized he didn't know. Every answer to every question begat more questions to be answered. And so he pursued pleasure and he realized that that pleasure is satisfied but only for a time because at the end of the day you still had to get back to real life because you couldn't avoid suffering ultimately because it existed on the face of the earth. And then he explored power and realized that power only sufficed for a time because there was always another who would come up more powerful than you. So our glory doesn't satisfy. We can strive all we want and still we don't find that bliss, that perfection, the way we should, it really should be. And so the apostle tells us, here's the mystery for Jew and Gentile, for slave and free, for Americans and Chinese and Africans and and South Americans and people from every place and every nationality, every ethnicity, every walk of life, at every time, it's Christ. And the way he puts it, he says, Christ in you. He says he's so close to you that he's in you. That is, if you trust and believe in him, the truth of the matter is that Christ dwells in you. And what that means, that little expression, Christ in you, it means that everything that's true of Christ, all that he has done is extended to you, that you live in him. He lives in you, meaning, That all that he gained on the cross is in you. 
the forgiveness of sins. All that he gained in his life is in you. His very righteousness. That's our guarantee that we shall see this glory. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, in and of your own heart, do you have that purity to see his glory? No. But Christ is in you. Thus, in him, you have purity of heart to see the glory of God. A day will come because you're reconciled to God through Christ, believers in him, that you'll see his glory. And all will be right. And that will satisfy. That's the longing of our heart, you see. That's, that, that was the longing of that woman in Luke chapter 18, that, that parable of Jesus. She longed for justice, didn't see it, went to the unjust judge to get it, and got it in a certain measure. But a day will come when she will be satisfied, when she'll see the very justice of God. That's what moves us to pray for those who are ill. Because we see before our very eyes that which is not right. And though we all will die, a day will come when none who trust in him will die. All will live and will say, that's right. Now, what's the guarantee of that? The guarantee of that is Christ is in us. And that which is true of him is true of us And he lives. So justice and life, provision and goodness and all of that will be true for us. That's our hope. And so Paul is saying to them, he's saying to us, God is saying to us, trust not in yourself, but trust trust in this one who is in you. He's your guarantee. Through him you will know, you will see, you will experience glory. And we get it now even in a certain measure because Christ is in us. And the measure that we receive it now because Christ is in us is because he's in us transforming us all the time. Notice, um, again, Romans chapter 8, this time, um, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, See, Christ in you. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is, is life because of righteousness. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, that's it. Because Christ is in us, 
He's transforming us. So we grow, we mature, and as we do, we see glimpses of glory, even in our own lives. We see glimpses of things being right. We see glimpses of, of, of us doing that which is right. We see the effects of us doing that which is right and promoting that which is right by right things happening. By our being transformed by the presence of Christ, we find people getting housing that were homeless. That's right. That's righteousness. That's a glimpse of glory. By God transforming our lives, we find ourselves gathering to help people in need. And we find their lives improving. That's a glimpse of glory, you see. That only happens by his transforming us. Thus, our only hope of glory in the future, our only hope of seeing glimpses of glory now, is Christ in us. So because this is going to happen, you see, we're, we're to live in this way. Uh, we read for our affirmation of faith, our profession of faith this morning, passages that deal with this glory. Uh, I began by saying, behold, I create a new heavens and an earth. That, that was a, a quote out of the prophet Isaiah showing that this new, this glory is to come. You responded from a passage out of First Peter, speaking of, of that which is laid up for us in heaven that's imperishable, that, that cannot fade, that cannot spoil, but it's kept in heaven for us. And it, it, it's being guarded, waiting for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then I quoted from Second Peter. Um, we took that passage that says this, but according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth which is right, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Yes. Because now you see we're to live in such a way that reflects his glory. Because you see, if that's our hope, if our hope is that glory, why would we live any other way. John writes to us in his first epistle, 1 John, in chapter 3, this, verse 1. He writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him. Right? That's glory. Then he writes this. And everyone who thus hopes in Christ purifies himself as he is pure. What does he mean? He means if your hope is that all will be perfect, if your hope is that all will reflect Christ, if you know that that's what will bring happiness, that's what will satisfy, then John says, get on with it now. Oh, you won't see it in all its fullness. You won't see it in all its perfection. And it will be a struggle. It will be a life of confession, a life of repentance, a life of hearing his truth, a life of walking in the Spirit. But you'll see it in glimpses. If that's really your hope, then get on with it now. Don't wait. Live 
glory. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gave to his disciples, his apostles at that moment, a meal. It was familiar to them. They, they knew it as a redemption meal. They knew it as a deliverance meal. They knew it as a meal that, that, that pointed really to their uh, well-being, to their knowing glory. It, it pointed to a time when the people of Israel were in bondage, enslaved in Egypt. And they were delivered by God by way of a lamb, by way of a lamb that was slain instead of them. They lived under the blood of that lamb and thus they were spared, they were saved and they were taken from slavery and they were to go into a land of milk and honey. Taken from being in bondage, going to a land of plenty, glory. And Jesus came to them on that night and he spoke to them of glory, he said. As he took bread that was on the table, this is my body which is given for you. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup that was there at that table and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds of this meal, when we take it, he says, as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming Christ in me, Christ in you, is the hope of glory. Just as it was the hope of glory for those Israelites as they went from Egypt into this land of plenty, this is our hope of glory, Christ in us. Because forgiveness of sins means that we're reconciled to the Father. His righteousness in us means we can stand before him holy and blameless without reproach. His transforming in us means that we can see even now glimpses of glory as we walk in righteousness and holiness. He's saying, listen, as you receive this meal, as you come to this table, you're proclaiming my death and all that it means all that's extended to you as my people, future glory, present glimpses. He says, now, as my people walk, worthy of Christ. Pray with me. Father, pray for me, for us, that we would know this, that we would trust none other than Christ himself, that we would know that he is our hope of glory. There's no hope in ourselves. We can't bring perfection. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be wise enough. We'll never be powerful enough. And every time we try to take it upon ourselves, we will fail, point us, lead us, direct us, work in us, Christ. May we depend on no one else. May we see all our sins and failures and cast ourselves utterly and entirely upon him. The desires we have for that, for all to be right, good desire, Father. Thank you for it. Purify it. But cause us not to try to make it happen, but rather cause us to first rely upon Christ and trust in him. And then by way of his transforming power, walking in his spirit, his strength, his wisdom. 
enable us to see righteousness, holiness, purity, and mercy, and grace, and justice, that we may have glimpses of glory, so that he can be glorified, for Christ is our glory. I pray, God, that you would set apart this bread and this juice in such a way that would speak to us strongly of Christ and Christ alone as our hope of glory. And Jesus, meet us here at this table that, we're, that our faith may increase, that we may grow in maturity and trusting you and you alone. May we leave this place knowing that Christ is our hope of glory. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners, know their own failures and sins, and trust not in themselves but in Christ, knowing that we're completely dependent upon God's sovereign mercy. We receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, the Savior of sinners who desire to live, not to glorify themselves, but to see his glory now and most especially in the life to come. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections come down this aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, allow to go off in your head bells and whistles. Christ in me is my hope of glory. Please come. Pray with me, Father in heaven, we give you thanks for all that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot fathom glory apart from him. We know that we misdefine, misunderstand, wrongly pursue even that which is right and good. Our understanding of justice and mercy and grace and love and provision and care and peace all revolve around ourselves and our best shot at it, but compares not at all with real glory. Thank you that Christ has come, that in his face is the very glory of God, that he is the manifestation of your glory, God, and that a day will come when all will reflect him, I pray, that we trust in no one, nothing other than Christ. Thus, I pray we be filled with hope, knowing that he shall bring it to pass. I pray now that he transforms us in various ways, that we may find glimpses of glory and that nothing else really will satisfy us than those times of seeing glory. Father, we pray for those who are ill. We pray fervently for them that you may grant grace that we may see your glory in their healing. God, we know that not all are healed, that 
each of us passes through the valley of the shadow of death, we die. And thus we know even still that we shall see your glory on the other side. As we're reunited, as we see one another and say, yes, of course, here we are together in glory because of Christ. Thank you for your grace to us in these days. We thank you for the improvement with Heather Lessig. And we thank you, Father, for how you've worked there. We pray for her continued health. Thank you for her family that so kindly and lovingly um, sacrificed to bless her life. Thank you. Uh, For my own dear Karen, I pray that you would continue, God, to work healing in her. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for this body of Christ that so loves. We thank you, Father, for what you've done through the Family Promise Network, and we pray your continued work to bring provision to people in need. May we joyfully be a part of that. May it thrill our soul as only glory can. Father, we pray for those in missions. Pray for Seth and Mindy Duell, Father, that you'd be gracious to them in their work with the navigators, for the pregnancy advocacy center, Father, that you would bless their work, that glory would shine through them as babies are saved. And Father, be with us as your people. May we walk worthy of Christ, fully pleasing to him. May nothing satisfy other than following him. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Together we will sing the doxology as a response to our benediction. I apologize to our Sunday school teachers for running late, but I haven't done this in a month. So there. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus both now and forevermore. And together let us sing his praise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father. Son and